0: and pull up a deck chair, this is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well, tonight we have a crazy case of deja vu almost, but First, a little bit of good news, you probably all know anyway, that little Cleo that went missing in Western Australia has been found safe and well, so that's really good. Now, this case was one hell of a case to research and write. We've got a lot to go through, so let's get stuck into it. Tonight, we're in North Carolina, where the accidental shooting of a man by his wife while he was in bed will unravel, as I said into a bit of a deja vu moment. References tonight are from The Charlotte Observer, The Goldsboro News Argus, The News and Observer, Realtor.com, Carolina Supreme Court, and this book, Before He Wakes, A True Story of Money, Marriage, Sex and Murder by Jerry Bledsoe. Now, if you really, really want to go into a deep dive on this case, I really recommend Jerry's book. As I've said before, I have the Audible version usually of all this stuff, and it was so well narrated, and its I think it's one of the best true crime books out there. I think it's about 17 hours narration, so you might want to crank the speed up to 1.25, wasn't too bad. Anyway, so it's February the 1st, 1988, in Durham, North Carolina. Barbara and Russ Stager live on a property about 10 miles or 16 kilometers northwest of Durham City. Now, I wouldn't say it's full-on rural. More like the houses have large blocks, and it's in a very wooded area, and it's out of town. Jason Stager, Barbara's son from an earlier marriage, Stayed with them, and we'll get more into who the main characters are in this case a little bit later. But I'll just read this part from court records to set the scene, and I, of course, edited it for flow, and so it makes a bit of sense. Okay, at six O a.m., Jason Stager telephoned the 911 emergency operator from his home. Jason told the operator that his father had suffered a gunshot wound and that his mother had asked him to call for an ambulance. A volunteer unit from the Lebanon Fire Department, known as the Lebanon First Responders, an emergency medical services unit and three deputies from Durham County Sheriff's Department were dispatched to the residence. Douglas Griffin of the Lebanon First Responders was the first person to arrive. Jason Stager directed Griffin to a bedroom. The bedroom door was open approximately two inches. When the door opened, the light came on in the darkened bedroom and Barbara appeared at the door. Griffin recalled that she showed a slight indication of crying, but very little. Barbara backed up and motioned towards the bed as Griffin entered. Russell Stager was lying with his left side on the right side of the bed. He was not lying cleanly on his shoulder but was turned slightly towards the pillow with his face in the pillow and his left eye somewhat covered by the pillow. There was a 12 to 18 inch blood stain on the pillow behind Russell's head and blood was coming from his nose and mouth. There was also blood on the hair of the back left side of his head. His body was normal in colour. But his face was ashen and his eyes were rolled back in his head. Griffin pivoted Russell so that his face would be out of the pillow and his breathing would be easier. As Griffin was taking the victim's blood pressure and pulse, Douglas Wingate, another member of the Lebanon first responders, entered the room and began to help. In the process of reading Russell's vital signs, they turned his head. This caused the pillow to shift around, thereby thereby exposing a .25 calibre Beretta pistol. Beyond the pistol and further underneath the pillow lay a spent shell casing. Noticing that the hammer on the pistol was cocked, Griffin did not move the pistol. Barbara commented that she had already moved the pistol. When Wingate asked Barbara what had happened, she said that the gun had discharged as she was pulling it from under the pillow. She said that she'd heard her son get up and she'd been trying to remove the gun in case her husband awoke and thought someone was in the house. Barbara told Wingate that they kept a gun because they heard noises at night and were concerned about burglars. The first law enforcement officer to arrive arrive on the scene was Deputy Sheriff Clark Green. Now, when he arrived shortly after 6.15am, Barbara was sitting on the edge of the bed and had changed into blue jeans, a sweatshirt and tennis shoes. Her appearance was neat. Deputy Green secured the area and together with Deputy Sheriff Paul Ernest Hornbuckle, he interviewed Barbara. Now, before they began the questioning, Barbara repeatedly said, I kept telling him about those damn guns. Now, the officers asked Barbara for some general information, such as the victim's full name and age, and she was able to answer their questions without difficulty. They asked her about the gun, and Barbara stated that her husband was in a stage about guns, and occasionally slept with a pistol. Now, at that time, Barbara's son Jason came up and she directed Jason to tell the officers about him having these stages about guns. He carries guns in the car. He leaves them under the pillow. He's scared about someone coming into the house. So Barbara here is directing her son to say this. Now, both Jason and Barbara said that Russell occasionally slept with a gun under his pillow. Deputy Green asked Barbara if there were any marital problems. And she said, no. While the officers were questioning Barbara, one of the emergency medical technicians interrupt to ask if one of the officers would remove the gun from the bedroom. Deputy Hornbuckle removed the gun from beneath the pillow. The gun pointed towards the victim. The shell casing was also removed from under the edge of the pillow. Michael Kevin Wilson, a member of the Lebanon First Responders and also an emergency medical technician with Durham County Hospital, arrived at the scene after Deputy Hornbuckle had removed the gun. When Wilson arrived, Barbara was standing in the bedroom to the left of the bed. Now Barbara became such a distraction to the medical personnel that they asked Deputy Hornbuckle to remove her from the room. Barbara repeatedly made statements such as, I'm scared of these things. My God, I wish we didn't have them. I wish he wouldn't have these things under there. I'm scared of guns. Guns are not safe. You know, there's kids in the house. Now, Wilson described the repetitious nature of these statements as like a chant. It seems like she's trying to build some sort of narrative here, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. Now, Wilson was a member of the same church as Barbara and Russell Stager and Russell's parents. After Russell was treated at the Stager residence and transported to Duke Medical Center, Wilson told Barbara that he'd be happy to contact her husband's parents or their pastor and drive them to the hospital. Now, Barbara responded that she didn't want Russell's father called and told Wilson not to call anyone. That's a bit strange. Now, Barbara's response startled him. He later asked Douglas Griffin, the first person to arrive at the scene, to go home and immediately prepare a report concerning what he'd observed at the scene that morning. Now, Griffin's report indicated that Barbara had stated to the emergency medical personnel that her husband had been hearing sounds outside of the house during the night and had placed the pistol under his pillow. The next morning, upon hearing her son awake in the house, Barbara reached under the pillow to remove the pistol and it fired. Okay, so Russell, sadly, would succumb to his injuries just hours later. A bit strange that she wouldn't want any help getting Russell's parents called, that sort of thing. And there'll be a few weird things like that happen a little bit later. Okay, so let's get to know who the main characters are a little bit better. Okay, Barbara Steger first. She was born Barbara Terry on October the 30th, 1948, to James and Marvra Terry, good, solid, church-going people. Marva was dominant in the family, and James was easier going and would do anything for anyone. Barbara was a shy kid and Marva expected her to be perfect in every way. Marva would be quick to correct Barbara, not only when she was young, like stand up straight, comb your hair, or do this, do that, but she'd actually do it into her adult life. Now, Barbara was pretty good at school. Although quiet, she was studious and had to work hard to get a good grade. So she wasn't full-on a brain. But she'd work hard to get those good grades. Now, she did have nearsightedness. She, I've got something wrong with my speech. She did have nearsightedness and wore thick beer bottle type glasses, like the bottom of beer bottles. Now, while in high school, Barbara had hopes of being a school teacher as she just loved kids. Barbara was short, skinny, as I said, she had those thick glasses and didn't think she'd be popular with the boys, and thoughts of sex were deemed the thoughts of the devil by her strict Baptist upbringing. I mean, don't touch that sin cave, Barb's. In her sophomore year or age about 16 to 17 for the UK and Aussies, Barbara was given a car and rather than go out for dates, she just cruised around with her brother She got a part-time job at Duke University Medical Center as a clerk in the collections division of the bookkeeping office. After graduating school in nineteen sixty-seven, Barbara got a small scholarship at the Appalachian State Teachers College at Boone. Laura would meet her first husband on campus, Larry Ford. He was born on the thirty-first of August nineteen forty eight at Ashborough, Randolph County, North Carolina. Now, Larry liked sports, but he was more of an academic. The first time they were alone together, though, a desperate and sexually repressed Barbara jumped Larry in the instrument closet of the campus band room. Jesus! Barbara was a bit clingy towards Larry, but Larry hadn't even told his parents he had a girlfriend. Larry tried to break up with Barbara, but she freaked out, and she ended up in hospital. No one could talk to her. She was just sitting there on a, the edge of a bed, just wouldn't respond to anyone. And what's called catatonic, <laughs> she ended up in hospital. So Larry goes to see her and they were back together the day she was discharged. Soon Barbara was pregnant and Larry wanted to do the right thing and they were married. It seems Larry wasn't 100% behind the marriage as he had sort of broken up with her And he had thoughts that she'd got pregnant to entrap him. Now, his father told him this as well, with Larry saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you'd told me about women like that. (laughs) Come on, Larry. It does take two to tango, mate. What did you think you were doing? So it's just as much your own fault. You should be responsible. Anyway, they got married almost in secret without parents Just a few friends on May the 21st, 1968. Barbara would drop out of college to get a job at Wesley Long Hospital in Greensboro, filing insurance forms for emergency room patients, and Larry stopped studying to work at Varco Pruden, a manufacturing plant in nearby Kemmersville. At first, they lived at Larry's parents' house, but then they bought a mobile home. Their relationship wasn't the best, with Barbara being jealous when Larry went back to study. Now, she thought he's having a great time while she was taking care of having this baby. She was was like, hang on, you're back at school now doing all this stuff with your mates. I'm back here stuck in a mobile home, pregnant, and having this job doesn't sound right. And she did get very jealous. Anyway, Larry ended up in the military. Barbara got jobs in banks and started having affairs. And now I'll go into their story in more detail later, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of a basic rundown. Now, Barbara gave birth to her first son on 1968 called Brian. Still, Barbara was bored and started spending more than she could afford. Barbara got pregnant again and had a second son, Jason, on the 27th of July, 1974. She then got her tubes tied. Again, Barbara wanted more materially and she wanted more sexually. Now, Larry knew she was having affairs and they decided to separate. They'd been sleeping in separate beds anyway and Larry had only stayed to try and have a family for the children. On November the 21st, 1974, Larry filed for legal separation and it's only then that he found out how much debt Barbara had racked up. But after a while, they did get back together with Larry forgiving her for her past indiscretions, more, to, like I said, to keep the boys happy and give them a full-time mother and father. Well, on the 22nd of March, 1978, aged just 29, Larry Ford would be fatally wounded with his gun at .22 calibre pistol while in the bedroom alone. He was shot in the chest. Now, Larry Ford's death was ruled an accident and... They never found enough evidence or anything to file any criminal charges against anyone. Now, we're going to get a little bit more detail of Larry and Barbara's relationship and his death a little bit later, but it wouldn't be long. In fact, I'll keep saying everything. I'll be giving it to you later, but this is a long, long case here, and we will get to it. Okay. It wouldn't be long, in fact, around six months later, that Barbara and 32-year-old Alison Russell Steger III, or Russ as he was known, met and began dating. On the 17th of March 1979, they were married. Barb's and Russ are now both on their second marriages. Okay, so before his marriage to Bath, we have to go right back in time and we'll find out a bit about Russ. Now, Russ was born on May the 22nd, 1947, to Al and Doris Stager. Russ was a well-behaved kid that liked to play too much and talk at school, but he was really good at sports. He was great at football until he got injured, so he turned his attention to baseball. He decided he wanted to be a high school coach. He was like all and drove his mates around in his Ford Falcon. There you go. Must be a top bloke to drive a falcon. And he was right into the Baptist church. Look, his grades were not so good and he wasn't able to get into his first choice, which was Campbell College. Instead, he enrolled at Mount Olive Junior College. Campbell College was a full-on strict Baptist college. He met his future wife at a basketball game in Durham in 1969, Joe Lynn Ellen. They would date on and off for a few years. His grades were slipping and he didn't want to end up in the jungle in Nam, so he joined the Army Reserves for six months, then enrolled in Campbell College. That was his original choice from before. Russ graduated in 1972 and spent a term student teaching in Cary. In 1973, he got a job as a physical education teacher and assistant coach at Holton Junior High. He really took to coaching, winning many awards, and he earned the respect of his players who idolised him. He would help out the poorer students as well and organise fundraising events. He was just an all-round nice guy. He always looked good and told his players that they should look good as well, because if we can't win it, at least we're going to look good losing. He drummed into his students, never give up. Russ and Lynn were married on October the 18th, 1974. A couple of years later, JoLynn heard a rumour that Russ was getting it on with a student. Then one night it got late and Russ hadn't come home. She went out to look for him and spotted his car parked outside his friend's John's place. She waited for a while, then saw Russ coming out holding the hand of a teenage girl. Russ and the girl got in his car and drove off. And so jo Lynn rocked up to John's front door, demanding to know, what's going on? As you can imagine, John was a little bit freaked out and said, look, I don't know, just go and ask Russ. Jo Lynn waited until she calmed down the next day to ask Russ what was going on. And he said he was just trying to help her out. <laughs> yeah, Russ, just trying to help her out a little bit. Good on you, mate. Anyway, Joe Lynn told him he was a liar and moved in with her parents while Russ tried to get her back. Good on you, Joe Lynn. He did get a bit of success there, and within two weeks, Joe Lynn was back. But she never really had the same feelings towards him anymore. Then, after just three and a half years, they separated after a blackout forced them to sit in the dark, right? They only had a candle. There's no power for the radio, no TV. There was no conversation. In fact, they discussed a separation and Russ packed his bags and left. So, there you go. Finally, with no distractions, no TV, all this sort of stuff, they realised they had nothing to talk to each other about. So, yeah, they just decided to call it quits and, and Russ just packed his bags and left. Now, after their breakup and divorce, Russ would remain good friends with Lynn, and eventually she would become his confidante. Russ was now 30 and he started dating a 17-year-old. He wanted to marry her, but he ended up meeting this Barbara Terry or Barbara Ford. I'm not sure if she reverted to her maiden name after Larry's death, but it's Barb's. Now, he met her after Barbara was house hunting with $70,000 of insurance money from Larry Ford's death. Russ had the house he and Joe Lynn had owned, and he was living there all by himself. Now, Barbara came to look at this house one day. She didn't buy it, but she had her eye on the owner. Now, Russ would eventually settle and pay out Joe Lynn for this house, and Barbara would end up buying the one over the road. It wouldn't be long before marriage was on the table, and on March the 17th, 1979, just days after Russ's divorce was finalized, and almost a year after Barbara's husband, Larry, had died, they got married. Now, Russ would go on to adopt Brian and Jason, Barbara's sons, and he would treat them like his own. Russ didn't really know much about Barbara's first husband. He did know he shot himself but he had no idea Barbara had actually been suspected of murder. Barbara kept Larry's parents from visiting the grandkids too, so he wasn't about to get anything from their side of the story either. Now, I told you how Barbara got a tubes tied. Well, I'm not sure Rush knew anything about this, because one night they were out and she mentioned she was pregnant. Later she told everyone she'd miscarried. Yeah, so this wasn't mentioned anywhere. If Russ knew she'd been desexed or not, I really couldn't find any references about it. But if Russ had overheard that conversation and he knew she had a tubes tight, you'd think Barbara saying she was pregnant would be a little bit weird to him. But that would be part of who Barbara was and would always be a pathological liar. So Barbara was a spender, spending more than she earned, and Russ, he sort of went along with it. He he sort of spent as well. I think he got into it just as much as her. Life for Russ, Barbara and the kids started to follow a similar route as Barbara and Larry's marriage, spending more than they could afford and Barbara needing more sexual attention than Russ could give up. Now, I don't think it was that Russ couldn't give her enough. I think that she just wanted more. She was never satisfied with anything. Russ and Barbara started going up in the world, getting better houses to live in, that Barbara would fully redecorate. They had cars, they had so many cars. They seemed to have a new one every year and there were boats, there'd be motorbikes. Russ was doing well as coach at the school he was working at and Barbara had a job. But even the neighbours stopped trying to keep up with the with the staggers, no one knew that where they were getting the money from either. Then they were in big financial troubles. Barbara would get to the mail first, so Russ wouldn't see the bills and payment demand letters. They also had a cottage at Long Beach, so they actually had two mortgages. Now get this, Russ didn't know about the day when the gas got cut off for not paying the bill because he was at work. It got cut off during the day, of course. Now, Barbara borrowed some money from Russ's mum. She got the gas put back on before he got home. Now, the same happened to the phone. Now, Barbara begged Russ's mum not to tell him. Then Barbara was working at a radio station. She ended up getting an advance on her commissions, but then she left. She was chased for this money and Russ eventually found out and had to make arrangements to pay it back. Now Barbara even told Russ and friends that she'd got an advance on a book she was writing, get this, about the death of her first husband Larry, called Untimely Death. She'd started writing one and had sent out drafts to several publishers, but she was rejected each time. So Barbara got the letterhead from one of the rejection letters and made a new document confirming her book had been accepted by the publisher. So what did Barbara do? She started to spend the non-existent advance money. Oh my God. And that's pretty much typical for Barbara. At at this stage, a few friends were suspect about this book and they started getting worried for Russ now, what made them extra sus was that she'd told different friends conflicting information about Larry's death. They all thought that she should know what happened if she was going to write a book about it. There shouldn't be any conflicting details. Now, one of the friends had a contact inside this publisher. And they ended up confirming their suspicions that Barbara had no book deal at all. But then they had to tell Russ that the book was just a hoax. At the meeting, the friends broke the news to Russ that there was no book, no $20,000 advance. Now, Russ was starting to really wonder what was going on. He'd, He'd had cops at his door several times because Barbara had been bouncing checks all over town. And they were getting loans, well, she was getting loans to pay off other loans. Russ decided to call his parents and they decided, got to have an intervention here, everyone's going to get together, we've got to sort this stuff out. So the Stager and the Terry parents, so both sets of parents got together with Russ and Barbara to come to some sort of arrangement to get them out of their financial mess. They worked out which bills could be paid straight away and then they could go to the bank and get a consolidation loan to clean up the other multiple loans and credit cards they had. Also, Rusty decided to get a post box so he could keep the key and get all the bills and letters sent to this post box so she couldn't intercept any of it. James Terry, Barbara's father, took them down to his bank to get them a loan. So it looks like he's going to be guarantor. This wouldn't work out too well. While filling out the forms, the bank officer came back in the room and asked if Barbara had previously been known as Barbara Ford. The officer left and came back saying they couldn't approve the loan and refused to say why. You see, Russ had no idea Barbara had been sacked for suspected embezzlement four years previously from the Security Federal Savings and Loan Bank that she worked at. Now, I don't know if this was the same branch or the same bank, but I can tell you, word gets round. So Russ's parents offered to buy one of his cars, But that put a shock through him as well as he found out he still owed more than he bought the car for because Barbara had forged his name and renegotiated the loan on it. Jesus Christ! (laughs) You think, can it get worse? Can my life get worse? They ended up selling the beach cottage and their home. They stepped down to a smaller place and that would be a 1918 Bivens Road, Durham. The finances were getting better, but Barbara was having a new affair. Russ found out about this one when Barbara's grandma died. On the morning of the funeral, Barbara said she had to go out and run errands. Later, Russ decided to get the car washed and saw Barbara's car parked all by itself in the Durham County Stadium. Now, he was thinking, this is weird. He parked his car just out of sight and waited. He then saw Barbara come back in another car with one of her workmate dudes, a guy who'd been to their Christmas party. They were passionately kissing, and then Russ drove up and stopped beside the car, freaking Barbara and this guy out. Now she jumped out of the car, and this guy just took off. Barbara started spending again, getting them in financial shit. He told his mum about it, and she said, She said, just leave her. But Russ wanted to stay together for the kids. So he turned to his ex-wife, Jo Lynn, and look, I guess lucky he did this bit at least. He eventually spilled his guts to her midway in 1984. Not only did he tell her about Barbara's lies, her affairs and her out-of-control spending, he told her he was suspicious about the death of Barbara's first husband, Larry. Now what he did tell her was, I know it sounds crazy, but if anything ever happens to me, I want you to look into it. Now, Russ started to regret his affairs that had led him to divorcing Joe Lynn. They seemed to now be getting along better than ever. Russ and Barbara, they ended up getting a new place at 2833 Fox Drive Durham, mid-1985. I wonder if any of you people actually Google these addresses. You should. They're quite interesting, some of the places. Anyway, by the end of 1986, Barbara was getting promotions. She was studying. Things were actually looking better family-wise, and Russ finished his master's degrees. But then the spending spiraled out of control again. Barbara would be writing checks daily, and they would bounce. She would have to juggle bank accounts just to try and keep things afloat. Now, Russ was becoming visibly depressed. Again, Russ told his ex, Joe Lynn, that if anything happened to him, to please look into it. And now it's February the 1st, 1988, 6.08am, and the call to emergency services from Jason Stager telling the operator that his father had suffered a gunshot wound. And as I told you before, Barbara was constantly telling these first responders, I kept telling him about those damn guns and that he was in a stage about guns. Then, (laughs) Then she was directing Jason to tell them about him having these stages about guns. He carries guns in the cars. He leaves them under the pillow. He's scared about someone coming into the house. All this narrative she's trying to get Jason to tell everyone. Although she was going on and on and on about the guns, she didn't really look overly emotional about Russ being shot, and later on, about him being dead so anyway russ is taken to the hospital he dies a few hours later now funny enough this gets written up by the cops as an accidental death and there is little or no investigation into what happened no examination of the gun there's no autopsy now this is a little bit crazy don't you think Now, Barbara told them that a few weeks back they'd had a break-in and jewellery was stolen and that Russ decided to get a pistol and he kept it under his pillow loaded. Now, she'd heard noises in the house and suspected there was a burglary in progress and was worried it was Jason getting up to get water or whatever and that she thought maybe Russ would wake up, get the gun and mistakenly shoot him. So she lifted up his pillow to get the gun and the gun went off as she pulled it out and the, the bullet hit Russ in the back of the head. She told him the pistol had a hair trigger. Now the cops seemed to just take Barbara's word as fact. Now Russ's body ended up in the funeral home ready for burial a few days later. Now Joe Lynn, Russ's first wife, found out about him dying when her parents rocked up at her door and told her that they had bad news. Russ is dead, they said. A car wreck, she asked. No, he was killed accidentally with a gun. And Jolene's just going, how? Who shot him? And they said, Barbara. I mean, wow. I mean, it's not funny, but the situation's just like, oh, my God. She must have thought, she did it. Now, jo- Jolene thought that Russ hadn't been paranoid at all when he told her that if anything happened to him, he wanted her to look into it. Now, she called Durham police and was stunned to find out that there was no investigation into this shooting. She finally got hold of Rick Buchanan, the officer in charge of the case, and she pleaded to meet him. Now, before she went, she thought, I've got to get my shit together. She wrote a letter telling him who she was and what she wanted to say about the matter, just in case she she forgot something. You know what it's like. Now, they met in his office in the Durham courthouse. Now, this letter, that said, Dear Officer Buchanan, Thank you very much for agreeing to meet me today regarding the death of A. Russell Stager III. In order to establish some credibility for myself, I would like to tell you the following. I'm a 1975 graduate of Meredith College in Raleigh, north carolina nc i taught school briefly i'm currently office manager for a very large successful residential builder in Raleigh. my employer is currently the president of the home builders association russell and i were married for approximately five years and after the usual distance a divorce brings we became very close friends and confidants that's why i can share the following information with you russell feared for his safety with his wife barbara Russell no longer believed that her first husband's wound was accidental. He too died from a gunshot wound and Barbara was the only person with him. Russell always said that if anything suspicious happened to him, that he would want me to remember his telling me that. Russell thought Barbara did not have a firm grasp on reality. Supposedly, she was writing about her first husband's death in a book entitled Untimely Death. She told him a publisher wanted to publish the book and showed him a letter from the publisher. He later found she had written for information from the publisher, cut the letterhead from the response and made up her own stationery to write herself letters from the publisher. Russ found huge sums of money missing and she would not account for it. He insisted she get a job so he could monitor her whereabouts during the day. He also thought she was having an affair and followed her one weekend morning to a parking lot where she parked her car, got out and got into a man's car and immediately began heavy petting. Barbara received a huge insurance settlement from the accidental shooting death of her first husband. Russell completed army basic training in the late 1960s and I believe he's been in the army reserves for at least 10 years, maybe more. He received the best training this country had to offer in the use and proper storage of the handgun. Russell had a gun during our marriage, but I only saw it on maybe two occasions. It was kept safely in a drawer, unloaded. Russ had a very healthy respect for guns, and I remember his comments about accidental shootings and how they would never happen if people handled their guns with respect. He would never have slept with a loaded gun under his pillow. I pray that God's will be done in this tragedy. Well, Rick Buchanan was a little blown away by Lynn's letter and he decided to look into Barbara Stager a little bit further. Now, Lynn went to Russ's parents' place, unsure how to bring this up to them, that she had suspicions that Barbara may have murdered him. Cindy, Russ's sister, was also there. Joe Lynn didn't know how to bring up her suspicions about Russ's death with the family. Now, Doris, Russ's mum, she just seemed to be accepting of Barbara's versions of events, and I suppose the cops hadn't come around questioning the family, so it just seemed like an awful accident. But as Joe Lynn was about to leave, Cindy asked her if she'd ever known Russ to sleep with a loaded pistol under his pillow. So Lynn then told her everything about Russ's suspicions and soon the family knew they had to go to police. Well, this time when they met with Rick Buchanan, he was already investigating Barbara Moore and had organised for Russ's body to be picked up from the funeral home for a proper autopsy and had found out that Larry Ford had been killed by a similar .25 calibre pistol. As Doris, Cindy and Joe Lynn sat in the office with Buchanan, they told him everything they knew about Barbara. The financial issues Russ and her had faced, Barbara's embezzlement which got her sacked and was the probable reason why their loan had been knocked back and this theft of jewellery the Barb's had said worried Russ about Prowlers and the reason he had the gun under his pillow. Now it looks like this theft of jewellery wasn't a real theft she actually claimed it on insurance but she made out that's the reason that Russ got this gun the next day Barbara went to the funeral home to place a single rose on Russ's coffin she was surprised to find that Russ's body wasn't there his body had been taken to North Carolina Memorial Hospital in Chapel Hill for an autopsy okay this must have freaked her out a little bit as things seem to be going as planned for her and now an autopsy She must have been wondering what was going on. Well, the autopsy results showed that the bullet had entered Russ's head in a downward trajectory. Now, Rick Buchanan at this stage had no doubts that Barbara's story was bullshit. Rick also had to hunt around to get the bedding. Some had been washed and were at Barbara's house. Some were at the dry cleaners and the pillow covers had been thrown in the bin, but they were all able to be retrieved. Now, forensics on the now-washed sheets obviously didn't have gunshot residue. But also, they didn't have scorch marks, which should have been there if a gun had been fired as close as Barbara had said. Okay, so Rick Buchanan is now on the case, and things aren't looking good for Barb's. He then reached out to Larry Ford's parents to get their take on their son's apparent accidental death by gunshot wound. Also, others like employers at the bank Barbara had worked at, they called him to tell him about her embezzlement. So he's getting corroboration. Then Cindy was contacted by one of Russ's players on the baseball team, Cindy's Russ's sister. He told her that Barbara had called him and one of his mates to come over to the house and she gave them all of Russ's things to be thrown out and or just taken to charity. Now, this is a couple of days after he's died. <laughs> Islanders, don't we know that when a spouse throws out all their dead partner's stuff days after the death, this looks totally, totally sus. Then Rick thought he would chance asking Barbara to reenact what happened that morning in the bedroom. Totally thinking she would refuse, he was surprised when she agreed. Rick made sure he captured everything on videotape and they went to reenact the scene. One of the detectives laid on the bed as Russ had been, according to Barbara, and then Rick asked her to show them what happened. Now, Barbara was really awkward as she tried to show what happened. She said, I remember stretching out. That's the way I stretch. And when I stuck my hand under there, I felt something. Okay, I, I started pulling it out, and I pulled it out, and when I picked it up, and I don't know, then she pulled her hand from beneath the pillow and was pointing it like a gun at the back of the detective's head. And I don't know how it was in my hand. I had no idea if I touched. I don't know. I heard the awful noise. Well, wait a minute. No, sorry. That wasn't quite right. Then she moved her hand a little bit deeper under the pillow. She's moving around trying to make it look better. Then she, okay, she said. And then I started getting up. Again, she pulled her hand and pointed it at the back of the detective's head. That's how it was. I started getting up with it in my hand. Wait, wait, I, I don't think this is going, um, he's not quite in the right position. So, she moves the detective into a slightly different position, moving his head a little bit closer. Maybe more like that. She tried again, but she wasn't quite sure again. And oh, Maybe like that. Now, Rick at this stage offered to give Barb the 0.25 caliber pistol that had killed Russ to see if it would help her reenact the, the scene and she just goes no 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 because no. I don't even know how it was in my hand that part doesn't even it doesn't even register I don't know I didn't even uh, look I don't know how what position it was under there I just realized what it was started to get up to get it out from under there heard the noise and shocked I couldn't figure out what it was sort of realized what had happened I I don't know if that's close enough or if that answers your questions but that's about the best I can do now Rick had At Barb's totally pathetic attempt at recreating the shooting all on videotape. Now, Barb must have realised at the moment that her story just didn't add up and it was a grave mistake to agree to something as stupid as this reenactment. Again, Islanders, how many of these types think they're smarter than the cops? She could have just remained silent, let the cops come to her, but she thought she could outsmart them with her bullshit little story. And then when it came to actually acting it out, she couldn't. Her story just didn't align with the evidence that Rick Buchanan had. So Barbara would eventually be indicted by a grand jury to stand trial for the murder of Russell. Her house was searched and there were stacks of paperwork. That was all taken to be sorted through, financial records and all that sort of stuff. Even Cindy, she found checkbooks that showed Barbara forging checks in the months before Russ's death and the money was being paid into her own account. And there would be very much more damning evidence that by some divine power came into the hands of the investigators just weeks before her trial. Rick had made an audio tape, much in the same vein as what he had told Joe Lynn about his worried worries that maybe his life might be in danger as much as Larry Ford's life had been in danger. And now it was found by luck by one of the students cleaning out a locker at the school. Long story short, it was listened to quite a while after being found, and then it was immediately handed over to investigators. Now, I'll read what was admitted in evidence in the trial, because some of it's been cut out, but it's basically most of the tape. Now, apparently... This only came to light a couple of weeks before the trial. So this is what Russ had to say on the tape. The last few nights during sleep, Barbara's woke me up to give me some kind of medication. I've not taken it. Last night she woke me up and gave me what she said was too aspirin. But this was like 4.30 in the morning. She stood there to see if I took it. I did not take it. I placed it under the bed. She came back to check and make sure I'd taken it, saying she wanted something to drink from what I was drinking. This morning, she normally is up and gone by 7. Today at 7, she was still in bed. She said that she was going to work at 8. Before I got up, she was over around there on the side, acts like she was looking for what I supposedly took last night. Now, this was the night of January the 28th. A Thursday night. So she stayed there looking to see if I'd taken the stuff this morning. I got it out of there, although she was very... looking closely to see if I was trying to retrieve it. She made the comment that you didn't take it. Those aspirins that I gave you. I said, yeah, I did. Well, I took the two capsules to Eckard's pharmacy at Forest Hills and they said that they were sleeping pills. Now, if I was already asleep at 4.30 in the morning, why would somebody wake me up to give me two sleeping pills? Barbara's second husband, the first one, I I don't know what happened, but according to his parents, there was some foul play going on. He supposedly accidentally shot himself in their bedroom with a pistol. Now, I have no idea what really went on, what really happened. She was there when it happened and so were the boys. My question is, did her husband, Larry Ford, accidentally shoot himself? I'm just being paranoid about all this stuff. Sometimes I wonder. Back to Wednesday night, January the 27th, Barbara had given me something that was supposedly for sinuses and some uh, some aspirin that was supposedly was Muprin. And about uh, five that morning, I woke up, and I was feeling terrible. I was hurting real bad around my eyes, my temples, and I really wonder if what she gave me was sinus medicine and Nupron. She also, I had some real bad case of the cotton mouth. Even after all this, when she woke up and saw I was in pain, she actually tried to give me some more stuff which I wouldn't take. What I would really I would really hope that I'm being paranoid all about this stuff that's going on. But I really wonder. This is uh, Rustaga. Uh, This is January the 29th, 1988. Ten minutes of two. Also, one time a few years ago, I had to get a post office box because a lot of the mail coming to the house, bills and stuff, seemed to be disappearing when she got home first. Now I've only got one key to this post office box and for the last couple of weeks, every time I've turned around, she's taken the key off the key ring and supposedly gone to check the mail herself. Now a couple of months, December and January, I haven't even gotten the bill from Visa which she says she's called them and they say there's just been a a misunderstanding. I don't understand myself why a person wouldn't send the bill if they'd been sending it for a year every month and not missing. Why all of a sudden they would miss? Here my question is, why every time I turn around she is taking that key and running over there to check the post office box unless there's something in there she's trying to hide because that's the reason I got the post office box to start with so I would make sure I got all the mail and nothing got misplaced or destroyed. Years ago, her grandmother died. On the day of the funeral, she supposedly had to go somewhere to do something. I took one of the cars to wash it. When I was coming back through after washing the car and getting it filled up, I saw our other car sitting at the county stadium out there in the parking lot all by itself. Nobody around. So I went across to the armory and sat in that parking lot waiting to see who came up. She came up with some guy. I couldn't see the guy but I did see that they were in the car making out and stuff like this. When I went over there in my car he took off and then she tried to put it off on me that uh, I wasn't giving her affection and all this kind of stuff. Now, that's pretty strange to be doing it on the day that they're going to put your grandmother in the ground, in my opinion. When we lived on Falkirk Drive, numerous times policemen were coming over there supposedly to serve some kind of warrant on her for some bill she didn't pay. Now, that's uh, pretty tough considering that you're hiding that from your husband and everything, which it would be hard to hide from the law. She also took money from WTIK when she worked there and didn't do with it what she was supposed to do with it. It was like a payment, but she never did the work, which I had to turn around and try and reimburse them for some of that. Also, at, uh, I think it's uh, one of the banks here in town that we tried to get a loan from knew her and because of that wouldn't even give the loan. Wouldn't give me the reason, but why not give us the loan? The bank was NCNB over on uh, Duke Street. I still to this day don't know the reason. What she'd done when she supposedly had worked there for a short time. But her parents were sitting right there with me and they wouldn't give us any any answer why. Also at CCB and First Union, at one time she had flip-flopped some money she supposedly had covered in the bank. But what she was doing was... Taking, or writing a check from one bank, taking the money out of the other bank to cover that and vice versa, which obviously is not working. Uh, jiggling this money back and forth was done for some car payments, which really weren't being made, and I had to come up with the money to pay the car off because the bank was ready to raise all kinds of pain. She supposedly signed my name on one of the bank cards, but really, was not my name well that's uh <laughs> when the dead speaker truly is spooky isn't it now this was recorded two days before his death he suspected she was trying to kill him now how would you be to have these feelings towards your partner a partner that had lost her husband just months before you met you must then start thinking back to that time and try to remember... Was she sad at the time, which would be part of the grieving process, or if she acted as if her husband just didn't exist, the father of her two kids. Now, thinking that maybe she did kill her previous husband and starting to put everything together, the sleeping pills, her affairs, her workplace theft, and her covering up all of these finances, you start to worry. And then two days later, after you... Record this audio tape, sleeping in your bed, boom, like a And to think, the cops weren't going to investigate the shooting, even though she actually admitting pulling the so-called hair trigger. Well, in court, there would be a lot of evidence to support she purposely planned and intended to kill Russ. The pistol was tested to see if it in fact had a hair trigger, and no, it didn't. Didn't have a hair trigger. The bedding that was washed didn't have any scorching that should have been present if the gun had gone off as close to it as Barbs had said. The trajectory of the slug had to be from someone shooting from above, not from under a pillow. Now, both these facts showed that it was most probable that Barbs shot Russ in the back of the head standing upright next to the bed, a meter or so away. Now, there was, of course, these financial motives. There was life insurance policies. Now, one policy was signed, and by signed, I mean Russ's signature was forged and witnessed by relatives of Barbara, and they didn't actually witness Russ signing anything. They just thought, oh, yeah, Russ must have signed it. He's busy. He's not here. We'll just just witness it. Now, another document, and this went on and on, was again witnessed without them actually seeing Russ sign. Now, later, one of the people who <laughs> witnessed this on good faith, even though Russ wasn't there, he noticed that after that, this document had been notarized. Now, if you know anything about notarizing, it's a real pain in the ass. You've got all this documentation. It's all legal. It gets rubber stamped and that. You can't just go up with a something that's been witnessed and just say, can you notarize this, please? I mean... Jesus Christ. Russ was highly trained in gun safety, of course. He would never have a loaded gun under his pillow. Now, without Joe Lynn kickstarting an investigation, Barbara was most likely to get away with murder. And, spoiler alert, she does get convicted, but we haven't finished yet. Before we get into that, maybe we need to hear a bit more about her and Larry Ford. Husband number one. So we heard our Barbara got pregnant with her first baby, with Larry, right? Now, Barbara, she got a bit jealous when Larry went back to study. As I said, moving back to his dorm room, she saw it as Larry going back to his old life, having fun with friends while she was stuck in a mobile home, taking care of the baby or being pregnant. She ended up leaving work because she said she had complications with her pregnancy, but she ended up just spending her days watching TV. Then Barbara gave birth to Brian in 68. In 70, Larry finished his studies and had just had six months student teaching left to finalize everything. Now, at the time, there was a draft going on. It could end up in Vietnam. Now, he didn't want to end up in the army in the jungle. And he went to the Air Force. He did the aptitude test, hoping to qualify as a pilot. Now, he did qualify, but only as a navigator. Now, Barbara was a bit pissed off that he might be gone for four years. Larry also didn't want to be in the Air Force as a navigator for four years. So this idea of signing up was briefly put on hold. Then one day Barbara came home and told Larry she dropped into the draft office and found out he was to be drafted. Now, rather than get drafted into the Army, he just didn't want to be in the jungle, he decided to sign up with the Marines. That way he would only need to be away for six months active duty and then he could come back and complete his six months student teaching obligations. Guess what? He hadn't been drafted at all. It was just a lie from Barbara. Now, that won't be, of course, the last lie to come from Barbara. Now, while in training, Barbara and Baby stayed with Larry's parents. Now, some ch- time she would go out and not come home until late, and she would come home very happy. Now, Larry's parents suspected her of seeing other men, but they just didn't want to worry him. Barbara then got a job at the bank, and she came back with all these gifts. They thought it was weird, thinking, you don't get a job and get all these gifts, but... <laughs> They probably knew she was banging someone. They were really starting to worry about her. Once she got this job, she left the parents' house and got her own place. But pretty soon, Barbara was getting bored with just life, general life. She just wanted more and more, so she started spending more. At the job at the bank, Barbara would flaunt her sexuality wearing mini skirts and talking to colleagues about sex. Now, this did upset a few people. Eventually all the women hated her and all the men sort of loved her being around. One weekend she told Larry she was going away for a few days with girlfriends. He got a call from an anonymous woman who said over the phone, do you know where your wife is? And then hung up. He couldn't call the beach house where she said she was staying as it didn't have a phone. He called the local cop station but they told him no one was staying there at the time. There you go. (laughs) Busted, but Barbara was never satisfied, not sexually or with her material possessions. She always wanted more without any regard to how it was going to be paid for. She would end up having an affair with a used car dealer, 11 years older than her. She was his contact for credit checks at the bank. His name was Butch. Now, Larry would find out. In fact, everyone in the bank knew about it. And Butch even went to the bank manager, right? to declare a conflict of interest because Barbara was going to leave Larry and move in with him. So he's actually probably doing the right thing. Barbara's lying to him saying she's going to leave her husband. And he's thinking, well, you work at the bank where I get all these bank contracts done, credit checks, I better go to your manager and tell him. I mean, this is getting crazy. Now, this isn't the only guy Barbara was screwing behind Larry's back. She did get pregnant again, had a second son. This is in July, 74. Then she got her tubes tied, as I told you before. Now, Butch, he sort of faded away after the birth, but Barbara found another car deal at the bank. And she did this on the first visit to to his house. And there were plenty more. And they were either bank customers or they worked at the bank. Larry and Barbara decided to separate. They'd been sleeping in separate beds anyway. Now, Larry, just like Russ, only sort of stayed around because of the kids. On November the 21st, 74, Larry filed for a legal separation. It's only then that he found out how much debt Barbara had racked up. Money that he thought was going out of the bank to pay bills wasn't paying the bills, and there were bills he had no idea he had. Barbara started banging a young guy at the work. It's just, this woman is just amazing. Barbara ended up getting the mas- Mustang. Larry got the Datsun. What a bum deal that is. She got the children's furniture and half the rest. He got the bills, the house and the mortgage. Barbara received full custody of the children. Larry promised to pay $175 a month in child support. Anyway, after a while they got back together. Larry forgave her for her past indiscretions and it was more to keep the boys happy than give them a full-time mother and father. Barb's was good for a while. Then she got the, a job as a secretary to this millionaire businessman. Yep. She started banging him until his wife found out and Barbara ended up leaving that job. I guess he's, <laughs> the reason Barbara got kicked out was this guy might have been about to lose half of everything he had. Soon the credit cards were maxed out. Larry's nearly got his carries possessed because Barbara had spent the money, the car payments on other stuff. This is almost carbon copy and this happened before russ it's almost carbon copy both these relationships then barbara ended up calling this minister she knew she said she needed a gun for a protection she didn't go to larry about this she went to some guy she sort of knew so she ends up getting this gun Well, on the 22nd of March, 78, aged just 29, Larry Ford would be fatally wounded with his gun while in the bedroom alone. Now, Larry Ford's death was ruled an accident. They never found enough evidence to file any criminal charges against Barbara, although they did suspect her. Now, once she'd finally been cleared by the sheriff, Barbara immediately contacted the life insurance firm demanding a payout, and they sent her $27,791.61. All up, she got $119,020.63 in insurance payments, plus 800 a month in Social Security from Larry's account to take care of the kids. That's a lot of money even today. But Barbara, she'd end up keeping the kids from being visited by Larry's parents. They would send letters and gifts but had no idea if they got through to their grandkids. They didn't even know she ended up marrying Russ. It seemed so familiar. Sex, lies, affairs, debts, insatiable wants, life insurance policies, guns, and then death. That's Barbara. Barbara Terry. Then Ford. Then Stager. Rick Buchanan probably described her the best <laughs> while watching her trying to reenact the shooting scene. He said, she's repositioning the body in the bed with her, trying to make it fit her story. And she can't do it. She's a lying-ass bitch. And that was probably vocalised as I watched the video and replayed it and replayed it and replayed it. There was no doubt at all that she intentionally shot and killed Russ Stager. No doubt whatsoever. (laughs) Lying-ass bitch. And yeah, honestly, that's what she was. Now, she wouldn't be charged over the death of Larry Ford, but she would go down for murdering Russ Stager. She would be found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to death on May the 17th, 1989. She ultimately would be resentenced to life in prison in August of 1993. She's been denied parole in the past and is currently serving time at the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women. Well, Islanders, that was a bit of a long one. And just like a few episodes before, I did want to split this one up into two. I just. Kept it in one chunk. There was no real place you could split it in two anyway. Barb's, what a lying-ass bitch. How she must have felt the morning she went to put a rose on Russ's coffin only to find out his body had been taken for an autopsy. Just walking in there thinking how she'd killed two husbands and no one could pin it on her. In both cases, financial difficulties that she was facing could be wiped out with the insurance money she would receive. I suppose her thoughts were that she was that far in debt that it would take years of being a tight ass to get back into the black, but she just didn't want to wait those years. She just forged some life insurance policies she could kill off her spouse and for an instant financial and life reset. Find another sucker and rinse repeat. The part about her being worried about Russ waking up and thinking Prowlers are in the house and he might get the gun and mistakenly kill Jason, the son. So that's why she had to reach under the pillow and get this gun. Well, Russ didn't even know Barb's had bought that gun, right? And he was such a heavy sleeper, nothing was going to wake him up, right? He had actually slept through his house burning down when he was in college. So the fire brigade comes. They've put the place out. They go walking around the place. Hey, look at this bloke. He's, is he dead or is he asleep? That's Jesus. Oh, Bobs, all I can say is that the karma bus took you for a nice long trip finally. Thank God for Russ confiding in his ex wife, Joe Lynn, and him recording the audio tape. And that was just days before his death. And it was akin so lucky that that tape was found. And then listen to because there was not only the time gap between it being found, but when it did get found, they took forever to even think, oh, we should stick this in and have a listen, see what's on it that was only two weeks before the trial anyway I don't know what you think about this case but it's crazy, these black widow cases okay, I'd like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the island's lights on Emily Brooks thank you so much, Steve Chaput a very long time listener. Mel Holloway, who up to pledge. Thanks, Mel. There's Jerry Maspero, who's been a guest on the island, the island lawyer, and he was on ages ago. And Ava Lupold, thank you so much. And a special thanks to all my patrons. Thank you so much. And, and the PayPal people as well. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer you can donate a one-off beer at paypal.me forward slash true crime island a free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases boom fuckalunga but can I just ask that you take time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups Facebook groups whatever mention the island because the island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free best of all sharing it is free of charge and it really does help the island out i'm also listed on audible so if you rate and review me there if you're on that service and amazon music i think there are quite a few other podcasts on audible now so if you've got one of these little alexa things you might just say hey alexa do this for me so you might find it a better alternative to listening in Like I said, especially if you've got one of these devices. I've got a Google one as well, and I am on Google Podcasts too. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you just want to avoid all these sort of things. And I have links there to merch, social media there as well. Also, you can email me if you want to get in touch. Again, if you want a real deep dive, though, into this case, read or listen to, like I said, I did it on an Audible, Before He Wakes, A True Story of Money, Marriage, Sex and Murder by Jerry Bledsoe. You'll love it, honestly. Get the audio one. Like I said, it's 17 hours or something, so unless you like books, just sit back and listen to that one. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, as I always say... Don't forget to delete your browser history. Night.